You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You got to be very quick. You got to be very um, fast to think of your opportunities and take advantage of them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Marina Chiavata, she is CEO at Hakate. And she's going to be sharing some of her experiences with social engineering and pen testing. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump into some stories this week. I'm going to kick things off for us. And, uh, you know, my story last week was pretty heavy. Yes. Uh, actually, we heard from a couple of listeners who were like, boy, Dave, that story was pretty heavy. Yeah, that, uh, was, that was a dark story, Dave. It was. It was. <laughs> so I'm going to be a little lighter this week. Uh, this is a story from Wired uh, written by Isidra Menkos. Uh, and it's titled, How to Get Your Family to Actually Use a Password Manager. Boy, oh boy, do I need this. <laughs> so uh, anyone who's listened to this show more than a couple of weeks knows that you and I are both strong advocates of password managers. Yes. And I actually, uh, you are the one who convinced me to use a password manager. Well, I'm glad I made a difference in your life. <laughs> That's right. When, <laughs> when you and I met, you were already on the password manager train. Yes, I was. I was not yet. Uh, but now I am, and I have seen the light, and I, I realize uh, how much better life is with a password manager, um, and in many ways that I didn't expect. You know, I think like most people, I thought a password manager was basically just a, a locker, a little database right. under lock and key for your passwords. But mm-hmm. there's much more to it than that, as yes. you and I have talked about before. Uh, we're not going to dig into all those details this time, but uh, this article is uh, very interesting. Uh, it covers how uh, people will get password managers like you and I have done, and then they decide to buy the family version of the password manager because you know they've seen the light, and now right. they're password manager evangelists. Yep. Again, like you and I. That's right. <laughs> and, everybody uh, uses the family Spotify. Why won't everybody use the family password manager? Right, right. <laughs> and this article points out that it's not so easy to get everybody on board. Why do you think that is, Joe? Uh, it's inertia, Dave. Mm. People people, uh, people like the way they do it now, and uh, they, they just don't see the value in the password manager. Right. They resist change. Right. And they resist change. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So this article has a lot of uh, helpful tips here for uh, getting people on board with using a family password manager. Um, I'll just highlight a few of them here that stood out to me. One of them was um, changing the, your kids' habits by sort of making them use the password manager. So in other words, walking them through getting it installed and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But then when the kids come to you and they say, Dad, what's the password for Netflix? You say, well, it's in the password manager. Right. Rather than just giving it to them. So now they have to go to the password manager. They look it up in the password manager. So you're establishing that habit of this is where you're going to find these things. Exactly. Plus, if you have a password manager, you can have a very complex password. Right. So you can incentivize the use of the password manager by saying, well, I could tell you, but it's actually easier for you to use the password manager. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things they suggest here, they say, have a designated taskmaster. 
So have the person in your family whose job it is to lead this charge mm-hmm. in our family. That would be me and probably you. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's, there's one here. Um, consider bribery. Consider bribery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the author says, sit down with your teenage kids, offer them 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> say I'm going to give you 20 bucks to sit with me for an hour and we're going to we're going to update your passwords. We're going to enter logins. We're going to, you know, transfer the important things in your life. Uh we're going to replace the bad passwords with good ones. Right. We're going to put them in the password manager and we're going to go through using the password manager for login. Right. Uh but but and that may sound silly, but um the the author points out they say if I'm ready to fork out tens of thousands of dollars on my kid's education, why wouldn't I spend a tiny sum to help him protect his most sensitive information? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth it. 20 bucks. <laughs> I'm more of the, uh, I don't have teenage kids anymore, but when I was a dad of teenagers, I was a more of a sit down and listen kind of dad. Not, I'm, I'm going to give you 20 bucks if you listen to this. You're going yeah. to listen to this. Oh, I see. <laughs> Just because, <laughs> right. Because I'm your dad. That's why. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that working out for you, Joe. Uh, well, they don't use password <laughs> managers, Dave. Okay. Actually, I don't know. I think they do. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, finally, there's there's a bunch of other uh, things here. I just wanted to highlight some of the ones sure. that caught my eye. Uh, finally, they say, don't give up. You know, be persistent. And right. I think that's really important here. The The basic value proposition is sound and solid, but... I, I remember my own experience of of adopting a password manager. I think for most people, and, and I'll count myself in this list, it takes a little while for the light bulb to go off, to right. go, oh, I get it. This is actually better. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, because and it's actually you, easier, isn't it? It 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 becomes easier. Right. It's not easier at the outset, and I think that's part of the problem here. Ah. It is work, right? To yeah. any transition, as as you pointed out, rightfully so. People hate change, right? And it is a change. It requires a little bit of work to help to get things set up, and that's where having someone to shepherd them through to have a helping hand that could help with that part of it. Someone who already understands how it works and can show them how it works. But there, it is a little work at the outset getting things uh, done, but. Um, like, for example, the password manager I use, it has a feature where um, it'll go through and basically as you log into places you have not logged in before, it'll say, hey, I see you're logging in somewhere we haven't been to in a while. How about we change that password? Right. And I'll take care of it. I'll do it automatically. Yeah. Are we good here? And you, oh, yeah, okay. So that's a great way to get rid of old dusty, crusty, reused passwords. Yeah, and a lot of them will actually, uh, on the back end, look through databases like Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned database right? and say, oh, hey, th- this password's already been leaked. Right. Let's change it now. Right. And also, if I log in somewhere where I am reusing a password, um, yeah, which will... thankfully for me is, is a thing of the past, but right. it'll say, hey, you know, you're reusing this password, knucklehead. Right. Let's change it now. Let's take care of that. Yes. Um, But getting to that point does take a little bit of work. And so I understand getting over that initial hump. Once you do, you're going to be in a better place. It is easier. It's faster. Um, It's not to say that there aren't occasional pains in the butt with using a password manager. I I, I mean, let's – I will admit there are times when I'm in a hurry. I want to get into something and I'm like – and I have to remind myself, okay, Dave, this is for security. 
It's right. for a good reason. <laughs> I got to go get my two-factor authentication. I got to get my YubiKey. I got to, you know, like it's every now and then you'll get a speed bump. And sometimes you just want to bang your head against the desk because of that. But it's all for a better purpose. It's a lot less of a hassle than having your accounts compromised would be. Right. So, <laughs> all right. Well, so it's a good article. Uh, we'll have a link, link to that in the show notes. Again, it's uh, from the folks over at Wired. It's called How to Get Your Family to Actually Use a Password Manager. Uh, Isidra Menkos wrote that. And that is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, are you familiar with the term NFT? I am. Yes. I am. Uh, it is something called a non-fungible token. Yes. And these are objects that exist on some blockchain somewhere mm-hmm. that are unique, uh, unlike Bitcoin, right? Which is, uh, maybe we should talk about what fungibility is first. Okay. All right. Okay. So fungibility refers to the interchangeability of an asset. Okay. Right? So if I have a dollar bill and you have a dollar bill mm-hmm. and we switch dollar bills, neither one of us has suffered any loss or gain. Okay. Right? Because dollar bills, dollars are fungible. Okay. One dollar is the same as the next dollar. Right. So something that is non-fungible is the opposite. Hmm. So if if I have, like, say, the Mona Lisa, and you have Van Gogh's Starry Night, mm-hmm. and we trade, mm. now we don't have the same, right? Right. There, there may be some difference in, in value. Okay. And I chose art because... A lot of these non-fungible tokens are based on artworks mm-hmm. uh, and ownership of the artwork. Right. So there are also other applications for this. The NBA has actually started selling highlights from the games, highlights from NBA games as non-fungible tokens. And somebody actually paid $200,000 for to own a the video clip or a video clip of... LeBron James dunking a ball. Yeah. Now, I'm the vi- sure— The video clip that everyone has seen, the video clip that is available online. Right. The vi- <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And yeah. how many times has LeBron James dunked the ball? I'm going to say it's a fairly <laughs> uh, regular occurrence. Right. I'm not a basketball fan. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't get the game. I don't get its attraction. I, I just—I've never been a fan of basketball. Okay. But I know who LeBron James is. Right. And I know he dunks. Yeah. Right? So that must mean that he does it a lot. Sure. So I don't understand. First off, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the idea of non-fungible tokens. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't think you're alone in that, right. by the way. And the value of them. Yeah. But other people are not. And and it's, it, it is a blockchain-based thing, and other people are actually paying money for it. Mm-hmm. But there's an article over on The Verge from Andrew Wang. talks about a customer of OpenSea. Now, OpenSea is a company that that deals in non-fungible tokens. Okay, this is OpenCSEA. SEA, right? correct. Okay. And this guy got scammed out of all of his non-fungible tokens. Okay. What happened was he went to a Discord where uh now Discord is a chat service. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with it, but yeah. it's it's a pretty good chat service. Uh and he he went to in, into the uh the Discord chat for OpenSea and started saying I need support. And somebody calling themselves Pascal said, oh, well, join me over here on the OpenSea support server, Hmm. right? And he gets over to the OpenSea support server, and there's another guy in there named Nate, which, by the way, is also one of the 
first names of somebody who works at uh, in in leadership at OpenSea hmm. as well. Okay. Uh, so he doesn't really realize what's going on, but the the support call eventually comes down to, or the support the uh, support call with quotes around it comes down to a screen share opportunity. Right. Mm. The, the guy lets these guys onto his computer with a screen share, and at one point in time, he exposes a QR code that represents his private key for this blockchain, mm. right? Now, we've talked about blockchain before. Blockchain is based on two technologies. One is a hashing algorithm, and the other is public key, private key uh, cryptography. So if you own the private keys for something, then, then the public key becomes your identity, and people know who you are, even if they don't actually know you personally, they know that your address represented by the public key can only be accessed by people with the private key. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the goal of these scammers is to get access to the private keys. And they got Jeff's private key displayed in a QR code on a screen sharing session. Hmm. Then it was just a matter of taking a picture of the QR code with a QR code reader. And then they had access to the private keys and they transferred all of his non-fungible tokens out of his ownership. Hmm, Just took them all. Took everything. So this is kind of like the perfect storm of what we talk about here. Here is a new thing that's, I mean, it's not really new. I mean, it's new in in historical terms, but non-fungible tokens have been around for a couple of years now. Hmm. But they're just starting to catch on. Yeah, they're definitely hot. Right, and they're hot. So this is where the scammers are going. Yeah. And once... They decide they're going to go for it. They really use tried and true tactics, right? They went into a Discord server. They set up another Discord server that was a fake support server. They convinced somebody that that they were going to help them out by doing a screen share. And they got this person to expose the information that this person needed to expose in order to get to get this person or in order to get access to this person's private key. Hmm. And and that's the game. And I don't know that there's anything that can be done about this from from this point on. Well, so help me understand. I mean, the fact that all this is on a blockchain, right? Doesn't that, as you said, as you alluded to earlier, I mean, there's, there's certain uh, because it's immutable. There's a traceability there. Aren't these scammers? Don't they have a challenge ahead of them when it comes to trying to cash this stuff out or move it on to some? It's because it's we can track. What happens next? Right. Couldn't we? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we hear about um, these, uh, what are they called? Tumblers? Um, the, yeah, uh, you know, Bitcoin thing, tumblers. Yeah, Bitcoin tumblers. That works really to... well with fungible things. I don't know if it works with non-fungible things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, the thing about NFTs is there's a, and I don't want to be too dismissive because I know some people are really into this and, and, um, yeah, and maybe we're wrong about it. Maybe it is the next thing that that blows up big. Maybe. I just can't help thinking about it like Beanie Babies. Yeah, that's, you know, Dave, that's a great point. <laughs> right? I mean, it's something— I like my tokens fungible. In fact, I like all my assets fungible. Yeah. And Beanie Babies is a great thing. I like—I'll tell you one thing I like. I like old pachinko machines. Yep. Right? Like from the, from the 70s, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s pachinko machines. Uh, and I buy them. And I refurbish them. But I don't do that because I think they're going to increase in value. I do that because they're, uh, they're going to – because I'm going to enjoy them. Right. When I'm looking for an asset, I want a fungible asset. 
Mm. Uh, that's just my personal preference. Yeah. So I'm, I I don't know that I'm into this um, into this whole non fungible thing idea. I'd like, for example, art. I don't know that I would buy art. I think we could probably do an episode on the art brokers uh, that exist today, the art market, and how that works. Sure. Um, I think that might be a social <laughs> social engineering scam itself. You know. Yeah. I, I just don't see the value. Like. So, well, I mean, it's the same sort of thing where you don't ha- – there's no set value for these things. It's, right. So in the art world, art is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Correct. And I've seen things where I wonder to myself like, oh, look, somebody duct taped a banana to the wall and someone else paid $50,000 for that piece of art or whatever. And I right. I scratch my head and I say, well, okay, I wouldn't have paid $50,000 for that. But the, for, for the person who did, who can afford it, great. Right. Enjoy your art, and if owning that brings you pleasure, and you can and you can afford it, more power to you. Right? Yeah. And that's art. Um, and and people are framing NFTs in the same sort of way. I guess part of what makes me uh, leery of it is there is so much money laundering in the NFT world. It's just attracted so many money launderers. Has it? Yeah. And and I I my understanding is that the world of fine art is similarly attracts. Money laundering. Money laundering. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot so, of sense. Here's one of the things I don't get about NFTs. Like, for example, the, one of the first things that was put, uh, sold as an NFT was Nyan Cat, which mm-hmm. the original artwork for Nyan Cat, which is a, a gif of a Pop-Tart kitty <laughs> flying <laughs> through space with a rainbow behind it. Right. Uh, we've all seen it. Yeah. The the YouTube video is, it will indu- has induced me to laugh. I, I think it's great. You can still see the YouTube video on YouTube right now. Right. Uh, and and you can get the actual a copy, a digital copy, a perfect replica copy of the original anywhere you anywhere you look on the internet. I don't see the benefit of what owning it does. Yeah. What well, does that mean? You I, you have no hope of actually enforcing a copyright on it. Yeah. I suppose it's well, I suppose the people who are behind this or who support this who are um, enthusiastic about this would say that it's kind of the difference between owning the Mona Lisa and owning a print of the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Right? The world has access to plenty of prints of the Mona Lisa. Not hard to get. But if you have the actual Mona Lisa, that's something to have. And where the Mona Lisa is at the Louvre, I believe. Yes. Um, and so what they're saying is we're putting a, a digital ownership on these yeah. digital things. That's and, the argument I've heard too. And if so, if you have that, you are the owner of the Mona Lisa in digital form. Right. But uh, unlike the Mona Lisa, I can get a perfect replica of Nyan Cat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's indistinguishable from the, from the other one. And that, to, yes, that is a part I don't understand. Right. But it is presumably the people who are buying this are doing so either from the pleasure it gives them or their belief that at some point they're going to be able to turn this around and it will increase in value. Again, back to Beanie Babies. Right. I suspect we're going to see the bottom fall out of this. Uh, and so it's just where everybody's riding the wave and the, the values are going up. But I maintain, and I could be totally wrong here. Yep. Uh, and I And part of me hopes I am so that lots of innocent people don't lose a lot of money. Yes. But I suspect that history has shown us that with things like Beanie Babies, with things like Pogs, with, you know, Pogs, uh, <laughs> that the, the people move on to the next thing. Yeah. 
And and uh, my fear is that NFTs is just going to be that. It, it's, it will run its course. It will be something that continues to exist, but these inflated values will be a thing of the past and lots of people will end up having lost a lot of money. As with any digital currency or digital thing, my advice is don't put money into this you can't afford to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There are also other scams. You know what? I think next week I'll do a um, a story on a different kind of N- M- NFT scam. Maybe I'm going to go on an NFT kick here for a little bit, Dave, because I think I think <laughs> well, there's lots of social engineering opportunities here, and I think yeah. that this is going to be a big a big area. So th- this this area is going to be rife with scams, and I'm going to spend some time talking about it. And I have no doubt, and uh, and uh, our listeners are going to let us know the parts of this we've gotten wrong. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, they they love doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's fine. And that's you fine. Know. We, no, we love hearing it. I, right. don't, I don't mean to sound flippant there. No, no. I, you know, we we want to learn. And right. if we got something wrong, we want right. to know. And we'll, Absolutely. we'll share with the things that we learn along the way. So uh, we're coming at this from, I would, you know, certainly you and I have informed uh, opinions when it comes to the security side of things, but neither of us are NFT experts. No. So what about the, the person in this article, though? What could, what could he have done to prevent this happening to him? Uh I you know aside from not going to the fake Discord channel, I don't know. I mm-hmm. mean, because he didn't do this through the web page. He didn't. He he went to the the actual Discord channel where the scammers were there waiting for him. Right. Uh, and one of them just said, "Hey, come come to the support channel and we'll take care of you." And they had set up a fake support channel. And he revealed his key. And he revealed his private he was keys. Dealing with. Yeah. Support people. Yep. And With people impersonating impersonating uh OpenSea uh support. And yeah. that mm. was that was the end of it. Okay. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes, of course. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from William, who sent this one in. Uh Dave, you're in trouble with the IRS again. Again? Again. (laughs) Oh, no. Why don't you read this one? All right. Goes like this. Attention! Good day. I'm Charles Paul Ratting, the Internal Revenue Service IRS Commissioner, Washington, D.C., United States of America. We received the report case from the Central Bank in conjunction with the International Monetary Fund, Washington, D.C., United States of America. They say you have been working and engaging yourself with scammers and importers, helping them to scam the United Nation world. However, we need you to reconfirm the below-stated information for verification and confirmation reasons. And secondly, you have to get a case file so we can take down your statement also. Full name, current home address, home phone number, cell phone number, valid ID card, driver's license, Nevertheless, the less, you have to provide us with the above-stated information so as to enable us to proceed with our investigation. And we have only been investigating underground, and so far we have placed a tracker on your cell phone. And we have also contacted your network provider company to provide us with your number data information from day one till date. And we have also contacted your email address company to provide us with your data information from day one till date as we have also placed a tracker on your email so we can keep monitoring all your activities from now onward. (laughs) Meanwhile, kindly note that your maximum cooperation and understanding is required in this investigation so we can carry out this investigation smoothly because any hesitation to do the needful required from you at any time 
will have to proceed with judgment with their report statement, and we hope you're aware that working and engaging yourself with scammers and importers is a punishable offense by the United Nation World Law of Section 9 Act of 1987. We look forward to your urgent and swift response so as to enable us to proceed with this case, as we wish you all the best in this case. Best regards, Charles Paul Redding, Commissioner and Chief of Staff, Internal Revenue Service, Kansas City, United States of America. <laughs> this is fantastic, William. Thank you for sending this in. A uh, couple of notes on writing better phishing emails. Yeah. Uh, number one, it's Charles Rettig. <laughs> R-E-T-T-I-G. <laughs> okay. Not ratting, like like a ratting terrier, like, like a chihuahua. ratting people out. Or ratting people out, right? Yep. Yeah. I, I, For some reason, whenever I hear the term ratting, I always think of ratting dogs. Mm, like yeah. dogs that hunt rats. Yep. Um, Mr. Redding's office is in D.C. and not in Kansas City, hmm. like his uh, like his uh, signature says. But in in the email, he actually says that he's from D.C. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. So a little bit of consistency would be nice. Uh, and learn how to format an American mailing address because <laughs> this is not how you format. And you can't see it, dear listener, but it's 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 a mess. Yeah. Um, Seems like this one's been through the translate, like Google Translate, <laughs> right, at least yeah, once. Been through the translate. Nevertheless, the less. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah. is a great, that is literally written in, in this email yeah. as three separate words. All right. Well, our thanks to our listener for sending that in. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to share on the air, you can send it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Marina Chiavata. She is the CEO at Hecate, uh, and she has a lot of experience with social engineering and pen testing. A really interesting uh, woman, and I really enjoyed my conversation with her. Here's my conversation with Marina <laughs> Chiavata. I started off as a journalist, actually. My, my degree, my first degree is in journalism, and I started uh, producing content for this company back in Brazil, that did a bunch of hacking and and tech events and and uh, content as well, uh, so that's how I I had my first contact with hacking, and throughout the years uh, from from you know from a content producer I became an events organizer. I started organizing events throughout the entire country, more than two hundred events of hacking and tech around Brazil. Uh, and because of that, I also became a uh, what we we would call there an engagement management manager or a community manager. And because of that, I had contact with a lot of people from everywhere around the country and the globe as well. Uh, because you know, I would talk to speakers and communities in Brazil, and so they can organize villages and workshops and so forth. And because I had that close contact with everyone in the hacking event. Uh, although I was never technical, I'm I, I'm still not technical. Um, I've I've learned a lot about hacking. I learned I learned a lot about hacking culture. Uh, you know what people like, the career paths they take, uh, what interests them, what they do for entertainment, everything. They were my friends. They were my coworkers. Uh, you know they were people that I admired, and because of that, I I've, I've heard about social engineering. Uh, a lot of years ago in a talk, one of the speakers were talking, it was talking about social engineering. I was like, oh, that sounds like hacking, but for humanities. 
<laughs> Sounds like hacking for journalists. <laughs> and that's how I first heard of it. But I did not become an actual social engineer till, um, you know, under a contract till a few years later. And it was with a friend of mine. We, we also were co-workers and he was working on this awareness uh, tool, like platform software thing for a few companies. And one of the companies contacted him and he uh, requested a physical pen test. Hmm. But he was a technical person. He was not very into, you know, the people part of hacking. (laughs) There was a reason why he was working behind a computer. (laughs) Hmm. And, uh, but he came to me and he was like, I I know you're very good with people. You know, you're community organizing, you're events organizer. Uh, You deal very well with social situations. Can you help me with this assignment? And I was like, of course, I've never heard of physical pen test before, but that sounded absolutely fascinating when I heard. And he was like, oh, mm-hmm. you, you'll be able to break into places and steal stuff and, you know, spy on what they're doing. And steal <laughs> it sounds documents. like he was, a, he was a bad influence, right? <laughs> <laughs> what was that first uh, encounter like then? What was the assignment? Oh, it was actually several of assignments. Since I've never done physical pen testing before, I didn't know about scope, right? Mm. (laughs) So it didn't set any limits for the client. So I had like 25 different missions in just one day. It was insane. I stayed there for quite a long time, uh, but I accomplished all of the missions before what was scheduled. And the client was very happy at the end because the way I did it, um, I opened a communication channel with with the client, and on that channel, I would post pictures and videos and, uh, you know, my exact steps throughout the entire day, uh, and I would give them choices, like, do you want me to go through this door? Do you want me to go to the other room? And uh, that engaged the client to a level where at the end they were like, oh, my God, we felt like playing video games, but with, but with you <laughs> inside our company. <laughs> Can you give us some insights? I mean, to what degree were you able to, to, uh, to go places you weren't supposed to go inside this organization? Oh, yes. Uh, I got into a product launching meeting for a highly critical product that they were launching at the market. No one even heard of it before. And they had all the schemes, all the code, all of the strategy on screen. And I just sit there and recorded the entire meeting. The security team was in panic, actually, when that happened because they had no idea the meeting was happening that day. Uh, And it Mm. happened in a common area. So uh, I got footage of all of that. I stole uh, around 10 or 15 Macs. I got information from their, uh, from their contracts by having meetings with, uh, with the team because they had a meeting room un- unattended, and I just <laughs> pretended I was from the, from the internal system that they use, and I, ha- I wanted feedback or, on stuff, and people just kept giving me information because I had the meeting room. Security came after me uh, and they didn't confront me or anything. And I was sitting in the middle of the department with my laptop opened and, you know, recording everything. It was, it was, uh, it was a hell of a day that day. (laughs) Wow. 
to what do you attribute your great success there? I mean, was it was it a matter of of uh, carrying yourself with confidence? Did you have a a very good uh, backstory, or what was the combination of things that led to you being so successful there? I gotta say, I am pretty good at thinking at my feet. I know a lot mm. of social engineers will frown upon this, and I am one of those that whenever I hear someone saying this, I'm like. Mm. You should never, you know, count of your on, on, on solely on your improvising skills. That is very dangerous. You should do your homework every time you can. Uh, you know how extensive you can. You can. You should do your OSINT. You should do. You, you should do your recon. Uh, you have to, you know, have a plan before you go. But the truth is, especially back in Brazil, a lot of things happen outside of your plan. A lot of things. It is extremely hard to predict your entire day in, inside of company back in Brazil. It's a poor hmm. country. Nothing works the way it's supposed to, you know, and you got to be able to think very quickly on your feet. And I had that because of organizing events. And we have a saying in the event production, uh, you know, field that if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. So you have to have, you know, <laughs> all of the plans, the backup plans, the the B, the ABCs of everything. <laughs> and that really helped me with social engineering because whenever someone would say no, I would be very quick to just change my course to, uh, you know, to make up a new story or to change my clothing or to steal some new uniform that I knew would get me inside somewhere uh, or, you know, just avoid some people that I thought it was suspicious. It's a, a huge combination of factors, but it all, you know, it all comes comes up to be, uh, you, you got to be very quick. You got to be very uh, fast to think of your opportunities and take advantage of them. Do you have any examples of times when you've gone out to do physical pen testing and things have not gone your way? Oh, yes. <laughs> A lot of them, actually. Uh, hmm. I think one of my funnest stories, one of the assignments that I had the most fun was I had to break into the director's department area thing there. Uh, it was a hall filled with the important rooms for, from the dire directors. Hmm. And I could have not done it during the day because there was a bunch of people walking around there. It would be too, um, you know, too obvious that I was malicious in there. Mm. Uh, it was heavily guarded and all of that. And I was like, I wonder if, you know, after hours, it's going to be easier. And it was. Uh, it was way emptier. You know, very few security guards doing their rounds. Uh, and it was way, way easier, but I had not counted on the um, light sensor. <laughs> hmm. So as soon as, as I stepped in, uh, you know, during the after hours, during uh, the night, uh, I just hid myself in the closet the entire day. I wait for everyone to go away. Uh, and then I came out of the closet because I, I binned in that client doing mission, doing missions before throughout the day. Uh, and then, well, after I left the closet and went to, to the director's department, I stepped on it and the lights went on and I freaked <laughs> out. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and I just threw myself in the ground, waited for the lights to go out, uh, you know, waited a couple minutes to see if anyone was coming, if I set any alarms and nothing happened. I was like, okay, it was just the light sensor. No one's seen, no, no one's seen it. I'm on the clear. 
Uh, I'm just going to crawl my way through the entire department and steal everything I can. And I did just that. <laughs> it was like hours wow. of crawling in the floor and hiding myself under the desks to open the cabinets around me. Uh, and at the end of that assignment, uh, it was already almost, uh, you know, morning. And I was just so sore. My entire body was sore because <laughs> I did not expect that, that kind of physical <laughs> wow. uh, demand, you know, uh, the physical exercise throughout the entire night. <laughs> I'm just imagining you, you know, crawling around on the floor and humming the theme to Mission Impossible to yourself while you're doing it. <laughs> that was that was the feel, yes. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, for organizations who are, are trying to do a better job protecting themselves against these sorts of attacks, what what are your recommendations? How how do organizations come at this thing? I mean, I know this is going to sound cheesy and this is going to sound like whatever everyone says all the time, but just do your basic stuff, you know? Just be sure. You don't have to have people trained to combat, you know, invaders or anything like that. Just do your basics. Be sure your accesses are secure. You know, people are accessing what they should be accessing. Badges, you know, the visitor badges are not badging in into, you know, formula labs or important meeting rooms or anything like that. Just be sure your basic accesses are very well well protected and people are well aware of those, how they should work, what they should do, how should they behave. And don't ever let anyone, you know, um, do whatever they want by not obeying the basic rules like badging someone in or letting someone, you know, shoulder surf or tailgate. Uh, because we do get comfortable and we forget the basic protocols and we do that very poorly. It's in one of those very silly mistakes that I get in. I swear, I do not. I, I, I know it sounds crazy what I do, but I don't do a lot to get into places. It's mm. really not that much of a challenge uh, if you if you just have Put your mind to it and, you know, find the opportunity to, to explore. You're you're in and you're in the most insane uh, places ever, like secret labs and, you know, media rooms and control rooms and security rooms heavily guarded. And, and when I, we're just knocking in the door and asking a few questions and getting in because people forget to do the basic. Do you think people just want to be polite, that they, they want to be nice, and so they, they hesitate to say, who are you and what are you doing here? Yeah, it is. I think it's a mix between being extremely polite, do not liking, you know, confrontational situations, just being lazy, actually, because hmm. it's just, it's just going to take so much work for you to do something right. And you, 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 get, you get used to, you know, your day-to-day, -day, your routine. Uh, sometimes you're not being lazy because you're mean or anything like that. You're just tired uh, and you don't understand why the protocols are important. You know, no one took the time to explain them to you. No one took mm. the time to explain what happens if you don't do, uh, you know, what you should be doing. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of, uh, you know, the laziness, the tiredness, the politeness and just altogether the lack of awareness. All right, Joe, what do you think? I love hearing stories of how people get into the industry. Mm -hmm. Marina started as a uh, as a uh, journalist and then kind of got involved in, in physical pen testing. 
It's a great story. Yeah. I love hearing it. Pen testing is a, uh, an important part of any security program, and I think that should always include some element of physical pen testing. Mm -hmm. And I am uh, with the story that she's talking about, it's amazing to me. Actually, I guess I shouldn't say it's amazing to me because I, I, I feel like at this point in my career, I shouldn't be surprised by things like this. <laughs> but she just essentially walked into a product launch meeting for a secret product. Um, right. Can you imagine if that had been an adversarial person in there? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody from a competitor yeah. who had just gotten in and was just sitting there going, oh, what are these guys doing? Oh, this is interesting. Slugworth. Right. Exactly. Slugworth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You got me with that one. <laughs> <laughs> she also managed to steal computers, mm -hmm. like, what, eight of them? Yeah. And, I mean, that alone, I mean, somebody walking, that alone has value. Uh, and there were all kinds of other things she she got. She just by posing as a uh, a person taking opinions on on a product that they use. Right. Amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how much pe information people give give you if you just ask for it. Mm hmm. Um, I agree that thinking on your feet is a key skill for this position. Yeah. Uh, you have to be able to do it. That doesn't mean don't do your research. And I, I think the marina really strikes that balance. That. You know, she says, yes, you have to do your research, but uh, that she's really good at thinking on her feet, and that makes her a stronger pen tester. Yeah. And I would agree with that 100%. I think that's um, absolutely the case. I, I was thinking, too, that I think, um, you know, spending some time either observing or taking part. If This is something you're interested in. Right. Taking part with your local improv comedy group. Yeah. Is something that's going to hone your skills of thinking on your feet quickly, of coming up with replies quickly. Uh, you know, that aligns with the skills required for improv comedy. Hmm. Do you do improv comedy, Dave? I have done improv comedy. Is there any place around here to do improv comedy? Yeah. The community college has improv comedy groups. Hmm. Sure. Okay. You'd be surprised, Joe. They're out there. I know. They're out there. Are they any good? <laughs> oh, no, okay, I ask that. I'm sure they're great. This is something I think would be challenging to me, which is kind of why I was asking if there's improv comedy groups around here. Hmm. Uh, I think it's very interesting what Marina says about what people can do to protect themselves. Hmm. You ask that question and she says, just do the basics and do them well. Don't, don't let people tailgate in to your office, uh, which is when, if you have a badged access, uh, you, you badge the door open and the next person comes in without badging. Everybody right. has to badge in. Right. right? Um, people don't want to be confrontational. Right. People don't want to be confrontational, but it make it okay to be confrontational. Mm -hmm. uh, don't let people shoulder surf. Uh, and the other thing she says is vigilance. People get tired, mm. uh, but you have to be vigilant against this. Yeah. And what's remarkable to me in, in this entire interview is she says when she's doing a penetration test, to get in, she doesn't do a lot. Mm. She just does like tailgating or, or going into a, an open area and sitting down and listening while people talk about a product launch. Right. It's fascinating. I, I, this is a great interview. I really, really enjoyed listening to Marina. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It was a... Uh... A really fun conversation, and uh, our thanks to her for joining us. Now, 
And we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our show. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.